Well, we turn now in our scripture text, our sermon text, Psalm 119, verses 161 through 176. These are the last two of the 22 stanzas of Psalm 119. Psalm 119, beginning at verse 161. Here again, God's word. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Sends our reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing upon his word this morning. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we do once again give thanks for your holy word. We know, as you have told us, that it is living and powerful, sharper than any double-edged sword. And so we pray that your word might work indeed powerfully in us this morning. May your spirit speak through your word as it is preached and read. And may it be for the edification of your dear people and for the glory of your own name. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, when things are going very poorly for you in life, how does, that ex- how does that affect your spiritual life? If you were living in a place in which you suffered great persecution for acknowledging the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, how do you think it would go for you spiritually? I ask these questions because the psalmist, as he brings this long psalm to a conclusion, really provokes these sorts of issues for us. You see, our psalmist led an extremely difficult life. He tells us throughout this psalm about the great sufferings that he was undergoing. And many of these sufferings were on account of the fact that he was devoted to the living God and people hated him for that. And we know that these afflictions 
were on his mind. It's not something that he had just put away from uh, his attention for a while while he composed this psalm. We know that this is on his mind because he talks about these things so often throughout this psalm. And yet, as we come to the end of this psalm, we find that the psalmist expresses a remarkable spiritual vitality, a remarkable spiritual maturity, even in the midst of great afflictions, probably greater afflictions than any of us in this room have experienced. And as the psalmist describes this mature, vital spiritual life, we can be sure that he wasn't trying to puff himself up. He wasn't trying to leave us with the impression that he was so great spiritually that we'll be impressed with him. Rather, we can say that he ends this psalm on a note of profound honesty. He acknowledges that there is much that he does not know. There is much that he can't do. There are many things that are out of his control. And yet we see our psalmist devoting himself to God with a profound faith in his Lord. And we find that this faith has blossomed into a godly character that is so well suited to an afflicted saint in his situation. Well, let us look now at uh, the first of these two stanzas before us, uh, the Sin and Shin stanzas. These are uh, the Hebrew letter that, uh, depending on very small details, could be pronounced uh, slightly differently. That's why it says Sin and Shin. Now, our psalmist begins this stanza with uh, a very striking statement. He says, princes persecute me without cause. Now, it's one thing to be persecuted. I mean, to be persecuted for your faith is bad wherever it happens, however it is experienced. However, if you are persecuted by the civil authorities, that just ratchets it up another notch, doesn't it? It's one thing to be persecuted by your next-door neighbor. It's another thing to be persecuted by one who holds the power of the sword. And we know that uh, this is something that was a, a serious problem for our psalmist because he's mentioned it on earlier occasions in this psalm, that he was persecuted by princes. And we know that when God brought judgment against his old covenant people, Israel, he often brought foreign monarchs to fight against his people and to inflict suffering upon his people. The king of Egypt, the king of Babylon, the king of Assyria. Now, these foreign monarchs were not exactly justified from earthly perspective in afflicting such suffering upon his people. That's why our psalmist can say, our godly psalmist can say, princes persecute me without cause. And yet, it is a serious thing that our psalmist is being uh, uh, oppressed by civil authorities. But now, before we go any further, it is worth noting that in the rest of this stanza, right, so we're only one-sixteenth the way through this stanza. Eight verses, we've looked at the first half verse. 
through the final 15 sixteenths of this stanza, does the psalmist say a word of complaint? Does the psalmist moan because of his great troubles in life? Does he have a spirit of bitterness that he expresses towards God? And the answer to all of those questions is no. All the psalmist focuses on through the rest of this stanza is the blessing he has from God and upon this godliness, this godly character that he shows, that he expresses in response to God's love to him. And that is pretty remarkable, isn't it, for someone in his terrible circumstances. And again, before we go any further, it's worth putting a question to ourselves. How do we respond to great trials, to great troubles? I mean, we just think about ourselves. What great freedoms we have. The fact that we are here worshiping openly, publicly. Now, it's true, of course, that in the United States and other um, in many other Western nations that there are concerns, concerns about whether we might face increased persecution in years to come. And those are serious things, but we might ask ourselves, how do we respond when these, these concerns come to our minds? Do they make us angry? Do they make us co a complaining, grumbling people? Do they make us bitter towards other people or bitter towards God? That is not how the psalmist responded to his persecution, which is far worse than anything we experience. And it's worth asking us, do we respond to our trials? Do we respond to threats or fears of persecution in the way that the psalmist does? Let that be before us as we now consider how exactly the psalmist does respond in the midst of his suffering. Well, the first thing he says in the second part of our first verse, verse 161, uh, he says, But, princes, persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. The first thing that he expresses, we might say, is the fear of the Lord. He stands in awe of God and his word. And you might say that this is the perfect initial response to being persecuted by others. Because when we, are, when we face the threat of persecution, what do, we, what do we feel? We feel fear. We fear man, you might say. What is the remedy to the fear of man? Well, in Scripture, there is one great remedy, and that is the fear of God. If we stand in awe of the living God... And we remember that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. That he is the one who governs all things that come to pass. That he is the one who raises up nations and kings and puts them down. If we fear that God, we do not need to fear our fellow man. In fact, we ought not to fear our fellow man. We fear God and he is on our side. And we stand in awe of his word. A word which is promised that God will never leave us and forsake us. That is the psalmist's first response to being persecuted. But he goes on. Verse 162, he says, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. 
So the second thing, the second way he responds is with joy. Joy in God and his word. What is joy? Well, joy is a kind of delight. To rejoice in God is to delight in him. And we know from the New Testament, on several uh, 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 texts in the New Testament, that the Lord wishes us to rejoice in him not in spite of our sufferings in this life, but even in our sufferings. Paul makes that clear in Romans 5. James, in James chapter 1, rejoice in your sufferings because we know that the Lord is with us in our sufferings and we know that the Lord uses our sufferings to build character in us that we might not put our trust, not put our affection in passing earthly things, but in our God himself and in the word that he's given to us. This is a great test of our earthly, whether we are earthly-minded, isn't it? Whether we are worldly in our character. If you are earthly-minded, it will be impossible to rejoice in your sufferings. It is only if we have our eyes set on our Lord, set on the things that he has promised us, that we can do this amazing thing to rejoice in God even in the midst of our afflictions. And then we turn to the next verse, and we see how the psalmist continues to describe his response to suffering. He says, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. The psalmist loves God's word, and of course, that means he loves the God who stands behind that word. I hope you can see the progression of thought. What is it that you delight in? What is it that you rejoice in? Well, you rejoice in the thing that you love. No one delights in the thing, in something that he hates. We can only rejoice in the Lord and his word if we love the Lord and his word. Brothers and sisters, let us love our Lord. He is perfectly lovely. There is no one, no thing that is more lovely than God. And God has loved you first. He has proven his love to you by sending his son. How shall we not love him in return? What a great thing to remember when we feel the weight of affliction in this world. And then verse 164, he says, Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. What a perfect thing to say at this point. He has just expressed his fear of God, his joy in God, his love for God and his word. And if you fear the Lord and rejoice in the Lord and love the Lord, what is the most natural thing to do? What we're doing right here, to praise him, to worship him. This is the great act of God-fearers and God-rejoicers and God-lovers. Worship is hard, isn't it? It is not an easy thing to do to set aside our ordinary cares and concerns. Worship can be, it can be a difficult thing for the people of God. Why is that? Well, the reason for that is because we don't fear God as we should. We don't rejoice in him as we should. We don't love him as we should. And so let us confess those sins. 
Let us repent of those and pray that the Lord would build that fear and joy and love in us and that it might flow forth in the praise of God that we might truly take the light in these times of worship and in all of our worship of God publicly and privately. The very next verse, verse 165, is perhaps the most astounding thing he says in this stanza. Verse 165, he says, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Peace. Peace for those who love the Lord and his law. Now you think about this. The psalmist has told us just a few verses earlier that princes are persecuting him. Almost by definition, you would have to say he does not know earthly peace. There's no earthly peace when the civil authorities are coming after you for your faith. And yet, in the midst of that, the psalmist can say, Great peace have those who love the Lord. Obviously, he's speaking about spiritual peace. A profound spiritual peace that the Lord gives to all of those who rest in Him and love Him. It is a peace that we have even in the midst of the most troubled circumstances in this life. It is a peace that Scripture itself calls a peace that passes understanding. It is a peace which the wicked can never know. And that leads very well into the next verse, verse 166, where the psalmist says, I hope for your salvation, O Lord. I hope for your salvation. What is hope? Well, hope is something that looks to the future. Hope is future-oriented. It rests with confidence in the promises of God. And this is, this again is the perfect thing to say following what he has just said. Because, of course, the psalmist is not at earthly peace. He has spiritual peace, but he doesn't have earthly peace. And yet, what has God promised us, his people? He has not promised us only spiritual peace in the midst of trouble. He has promised us an everlasting peace. He has promised us that there is a day coming when you will have peace in every single aspect of your life. In every single aspect of your experience, there is a day coming when he will destroy every enemy and destroy sickness and destroy death and destroy poverty, destroy warfare. And so the psalmist looks in hope for that day when he will know holistic peace. And that is the great prospect which God holds before every one of his people. Before we finish looking at the stanza in a moment, at the the, the end of this stanza, I just want to pause for a moment and to point out what a wonderful statement of godly character our psalmist has put before us thus far in this stanza. And, you know, as we read the Old Testament, even as we read the Psalms, we do find things in the Old Testament that we know... Uh, are not meant to be models for us in our godly life exactly. There are some things that were distinctive for the old covenant people that we aren't to follow, at least not to follow exactly. 
in our new covenant Christian life. But what the psalmist has set before us, it's like a blueprint for the new covenant Christian life. And I just would want to call your attention for a moment to the opening of Romans 5. I'm not going to turn there. You don't need to turn there in your Bibles, but if you're taking notes, you can make a note of this here. In the opening of Romans 5, in the midst of Paul's great explanation, this this most, uh, most detailed explanation of Christian salvation in all of Scripture, Paul pauses to talk about, briefly, the character of the Christian life. And he says, those of us who are justified by faith, what do we have? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. And he says that having this peace enables us to rejoice in our sufferings. And he goes on to say that this suffering produces endurance and character and hope. Do you see all these themes that we have just been considering in our stanza? This is the character of the psalmist, a godly old covenant saint, but it is also a wonderful, is wonderful instruction for us as new covenant saints. We might say, Paul could hardly say it better as he describes how we ought to live even this day. Well, now let's look back at the close of this Sin and Shin stanza. At the end of verse 166, and then in verses 167 and 168, the end of this stanza, you notice that the psalmist repeats an idea several times. He says, I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I keep your precepts and testimonies. And what a great way to end this stanza. For the godly person who fears God, who rejoices in Him and loves Him and has peace and hope, what can that person do? What can we do but follow the commandments of our Lord, but keep them faithfully? And the psalmist does this. You notice the last line of the stanza. For all my ways are before you. The psalmist seeks to keep the ways of God, the the laws of God, in the presence of his God. He's not hiding anything from God. Because he knows, he knows that the Lord has forgiven all of his sins. He knows that the Lord is at work in him, building righteousness. And so before the presence of God, he pursues these ways of holiness according to God's word. Well, if you or I were writing Psalm 119, not that any of us were capable of doing something like that, but if you and I were writing Psalm 119, I suspect we would be tempted to end right there. I mean, what a great way to end. And yet the psalmist doesn't, does he? And he doesn't because it wouldn't provide a perfectly accurate sense of where he is spiritually. He would leave us the impression that he was a sort of spiritual giant. And that's, of course, what we would like people to think of us. That's why we would end it there. But the psalmist, the psalmist is a suffering man. 
the psalmist is still suffering, or he's still bearing the scars of his rebellion against God, of the punishment that God has inflicted upon him, and upon his continual suffering at the hands of evil people. And the psalmist, the psalmist is unsure about how all things are going to turn out for him in this life. And so he offers us one more stanza. And what we see in the first two verses of the Tav stanza, verses 169 and 170, we see the psalmist offering up petitions to God, offering up requests to God. It's interesting that the psalmist doesn't offer requests to God in the previous stanza. He's not offering up prayers to him, asking him for things. But here he does. He needs understanding. He needs deliverance. Because he's suffering under ignorance. He's suffering under so many hardships. So this is one of the things we do in prayer. We make petitions to God. You young people who are here, when you pray, one of the things you do in prayer is you ask the Lord for his help for yourselves, but also and even especially for other people. But you see, that's not all we do in prayer. And it's so wonderful to see that in the next two verses, verses 171 to 172, what does the psalmist do? The psalmist, it's as if he can't help but turn back to praise. My lips will pour forth praise. My tongue will sing of your word. Yes, in our prayers, we offer up requests to God, petitions to God. But our prayers are not complete unless we pour forth our praise and our thanksgiving to the living God. That, you might say, is the heart of prayer. It's not about asking God for things. The heart of prayer is worshiping his holy name. The psalmist has already praised God in the previous stanza, and he can't help but return to it here. It's a wonderful model for our own prayers. Yes, ask the Lord for things, but do not forget to praise and thank him for his excellent greatness. Now, that's the first half of this Tav stanza. We might expect perhaps he will repeat this pattern in the second half of this stanza, and he almost does. If we look at the next two verses, verses 173 and 174, we find that the psalmist really is in petition mode, request mode. Uh, he says in verse 173, let your hand be ready to help me. In verse 174, I long for your salvation. And that's a way of saying, Lord, I need this, right? I'm in need. I, 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 I long to receive your help. And then in verse 175, the second to last verse of this stanza, he turns back to praise mode, to worship mode, you might say. Let my soul live and praise you. Let your rules help me. And so what do we expect to find in the last verse of this long psalm? I'm going to suggest that we expect the psalmist to end on a note of resounding praise. This would seem to fit the pattern. Two verses of petition, two verses of praise. Two verses of petition, one verse of praise. Why not end with one more verse of praise? Again, that's what we would probably do. It would seem fitting, but you see, it's not what he does, is it? In fact, 
if we're honest, we might say that the psalmist ends on rather a down note. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Well, brothers and sisters, there is there's a lot that could be said about this last verse. Perhaps some other time, if I am here, we might reflect on the whole of this psalm all at once and think again, especially about why the psalmist ends in this way. But only a few words to close the sermon this morning. Remember that our psalmist was an old covenant believer. As I explained last week, our psalmist was a sojourner. He was away from the promised land. He was living apparently among pagan Gentiles who were lording it over him, persecuting him. And undoubtedly, many of his fellow Israelites were in the same boat as he was. And the fact is that the Old Testament ends with things very, very uncertain for the Old Covenant people of God. Some of the Old Covenant saints returned from exile in Babylon back to Jerusalem, but many remained in Babylon. Many of God's Old Covenant people remained scattered around what we would call the Middle East and the Mediterranean Basin when the Old Covenant drew to an end. God's people were scattered. They were like lost sheep. But what our psalmist ends here by expressing is hope for, looking for, anticipating God to be the great shepherd of his people. And what does a shepherd do but gather the lost sheep? He is saying, Lord, be our good shepherd. And brothers and sisters, we read this as the new covenant people. Did God answer the prayer of this psalmist? Oh, yes, he did. When our Lord Jesus Christ came, he said, I am the good shepherd. And you think about John chapter 10, where he says, I have come, and there are sheep that are not in this sheep pen that I need to gather them. From the ends of the earth, our Lord Jesus set about to gather his lost sheep from Israel and from the other nations. How wonderful it is as we read this last verse. It expresses a note of a note of uncertainty, a note of trouble, a note of being adrift in this world. It is not as though all of our problems are solved now in this world. But we know that God has kept his promises. He has heard the pleas of his old covenant people and he has sent the good shepherd. Let us rest in him. Let us know that he is the one who gives us relief and comfort and encouragement in all of our troubles. And that he will one day give us that holistic peace that he has promised to all who are hoping in him. Let us pray. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you. Thank you that you have given us this great psalm, that you have shown us in the psalmist a great 
uh, a great model of godliness, even in the midst of great troubles in this world. Thank you that our psalmist, in the midst of his troubles, looked to you and knew that you were the good shepherd of your sheep and that you would act to call and to gather all of your elect people. Our psalmist did not know how you would do that, but we know it was through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we give thanks to you for him, and we look to you even this day in his name and pray that he would continue to tend us and care for us and bring us safely to everlasting glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we have heard